Well, hello again, you remarkable reticulated giraffes. We are here for another week of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Sarah. I am here as ever with Casey. Hi, guys. Hey, how are you, Casey? Good. How are you, Sarah? I am okay. Uh, Casey and I are former professional conservation educators, still conservation educators in our hearts. Hence. Once a conservation educator, always a conservation educator. Like true. it's basically a calling very similar to, I would say like, I don't know, the priesthood or something like that, where you're like, nope, this is where my heart is. And so we will never stop. No one has to pay us to do this. That's right. That's that's exactly why we're here. Uh, We're here doing this because we love it, not because we are experts in all subjects that we talk about, but because we love doing it, we like to continue learning about it. We like to encourage other people to learn about the awesome nature all around us and how we can better care for our planet. So that's that's why we're here. We Casey and I used to work together. We now live in separate states, so this is also just a fun way to hang out together. So Casey, any updates, any life updates for us, any nature updates for us, anything cool from your week to report? Well, I, I feel like on that note also, this is kind of a way to keep connected with folks that we've worked with mm-hmm. in the past too. Cause I know that a lot of our, our old coworkers, our listeners, a lot of we friends and family so are. Yep. Um, so I think our friend Rebecca had put a post being like, Oh, it's, you know, I don't have to miss you as much because <laughs> yeah. you're in my ears. So, yeah. so that's really nice life updates. We're still looking for our house. We yeah. were like, Oh, we're going to go see two tomorrow. And the one was on the market for three days and is gone. So <laughs> now we're going to see one tomorrow. So that continues to basically be the saga of my life is let's find a home. What about you, Sarah? It's the worst, you know, (laughs) I empathize with you. My life is not the worst. House hunting is the worst. Uh, (laughs) It's uh, especially right now. So you know that I empathize with that very much. And I'm excited for you to find what is right for you. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of updates. I, my composting journey continues. So I say, did you get your bin? I'm waiting unless it was delivered today. I actually didn't check, but it's not supposed to, I'm not expecting it for another couple of days, but hopefully soon we asked folks to share pictures of their compost, whatever scraps bin process. We've had a couple people share, not a lot though. So feel free to still share with us if you are a composter, but we're so halfway I have not, through the week of yeah. the, this coming out too. So yes. you've got a little bit of time. I'm yes. going to post mine. So. so as of right now, I have not shared, I have not received my bin. I haven't shared my photo, but I'm hoping that before this episode that we are recording actually airs, I will have gotten a chance to do so and will have gotten my bin. So I'm excited. I spent a little more on it than I would have wanted to. Again, just a personal choice, but it's what I had said I was going to get. It's a it's a dual chambered tumbler. So I'll be able to have the fancy. Yeah, one <laughs> pile going and another pile that I'm adding scraps to actively. And it is it's plastic, but it's made out of recycled material. So it's that's something. And I'm very excited. So that's that. Um, in terms of podcast updates for you. We're on Twitter. We're on Twitter. We're on well, Twitter. Sarah's 
I'm has on us on Twitter. <laughs> I'm not a big Twitter person, but I'm gonna say tweeter for a second. I, I was, was gonna say tweeter for a second, <laughs> but I refrained. Uh, but I think it's gonna be fun. The nice thing about Twitter is it is really easy to share other things. So any fun animal stories or conservation yes. stories that pop up, we'll hopefully be able to share those through our account to you, as well as I. Think. We'll see how this goes. I think we'll be able to link directly to podcast episodes from the Twitter the way that we cannot in some other platforms. So give us a follow if you are on the Twitter. And I, so our handle, the, all the names I wanted were taken. So we are at a greener podcast, I believe. We had to okay. a greener podcast. Our name is still a little greener podcast, and you'll see our little leaf logo that we have everywhere. But, but yeah, that's my big update for the week. We normally save this for the end, but uh, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Give us a like, review, share with your friends, all that kind of stuff. Now it's not just the people who listened all the way to the end. You're hearing it. You're at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No um, excuses now. No excuses. Appreciate everyone yes. who has already done that because that helps us reach more listeners. And because we are uh, conservation educators by by calling and by heart, we, we really would like more people to get passionate about nature like us. Yeah. Another update is, I mean, not really an update so much. It's Black History Month. It is. I, it is, I think, an important thing to bring up on this podcast for, for a couple reasons. Um, Black people, just like all different races, have been an important part of environmental movements over the course of the year, uh, years, important reservoirs of knowledge and discovery for lots of, of different species, which we're going to be talking about today, but also like lots of different uh, nature processes and things. And they are also disproportionately impacted by in environmental struggles that we we face currently so i decided I, I was thinking maybe i'll do an environmental justice episode i don't know if i wanted to go there i decided let's celebrate some black joy instead of just yeah. the struggle so on instagram i'm going to post some of my favorite accounts led by black environmentalists so check out there give them a follow because there's some really fantastic cool voices going on on that platform so many yeah so that's exciting. So make sure you're checking out our social media over the next, I was going to say over the next few weeks, but really for always, we won't limit this to just yeah. February, but we'll make a it nice a time to call it, call attention to it. So for real. Okay. So normally I, <laughs> I realized I didn't put our warm up question on here, Sarah. So I'm going to spring this on you. Oh, um, no. and I know, and, and, and you can edit out the giant pause that we'll probably take. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so we're going to talk about taxonomy, which we'll define shortly, but basically we're talking about species names. Do you have a favorite species name? I mean, we're talking about like the, the, the Latin scientific, scientific yeah, stuff going on. Well, I guess the short answer is no. Off the top <laughs> of my head, I do not have a favorite scientific name. And of course, everyone that I've ever known has fallen out of my brain right when you've asked me this question. because I so, give you no prep. <laughs> so I'm going to say no, but I reserve the right to think about it. Yes. While you answer this question and for the duration of the episode. And if I come up Please. with a good answer, I will 
put it in at the end. So now you all have to listen to the whole episode to see there if I go. come up with anything. Yes. Good. Challenge for Sarah, challenge for listeners. Um, okay. So one of my favorites, um, just because I like any of them that are double names. So basically mm. today we're going to talk about the nerdiest subject possible, <laughs> which is taxonomy. Um, and if, if you're not familiar with this, think about like homo sapien is our species name. But I like ones that are like gorilla, gorilla, yeah. or, um, which is what you might have guessed, <laughs> gorillas. <laughs> but there's also boobo, boobo. <laughs> oh, I don't know that one. That one, I believe, is the Eurasian eagle owl. And okay. I just, I think that's delightful. Boobo, boobo. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> see, good. Say, say it and don't smile. I challenge yeah. you. So um, here's here. Okay. So here's a step in my answer. That's okay. still a non-answer, but I just like anyone that I can pronounce. Oh, fair. <laughs> because we'll talk about this in the episode, but that's part of my challenge when it, when we talk about things like taxonomy is that when I look at the words, it doesn't mean anything in my brain. And I'm a reader. Like I'm a person that likes words, but I hate it when I look at these scientific names and I'm like that combination of letters means nothing to me so I anything you know panthera leo that makes sense to me I can remember that I know what that is yeah yeah and I I bet that probably half of you listening heard you could could guess like if I made you guess panthera leo you would be able to guess that animal so I I don't have any fun ones but if I'm being honest about what I like it's the ones that I can pronounce and remember easily I believe there's some geckos that are sprachodactylus, which is also wonderful. <laughs> I, a lot of the dinosaurs that we know, they kind of go by like that general genus name too. So you can think about that as well. Um, so yeah, like I said, we're going to dive into, I was joking with Sarah that this is like perhaps the most inaccessible um, topic that <laughs> that I could have picked um, and the nerdiest because I, I find it delightfully frustrating. Um, but we're hoping to sort of, Make I'm making the argument basically that it matters um, yes. and the implications that these have for both species conservation and people in their normal life. So if you stick around, I hope that at least you'll learn something, but hopefully you enjoy the journey too. So stick around after the break. We're going to talk about taxonomy and what makes the species. guys we are back with the main portion of our episode and i am going to ask sarah the basically the thrust of what this episode is about what is taxonomy sarah well casey you just described it as being delightfully frustrating (laughs) i just described it as being frustrating (laughs) confusing overwhelming those are the things that i feel when i hear taxonomy In reality, though, it is supposed to be the opposite of those things. Taxonomy is how we classify organisms, not just animals, plants, bacteria, fungi, whatever. It is how we we classify organisms and categorize them in order to better understand them. That's the idea is that, I mean, this is science is global and there are people around the world 
studying these things and we need to be communicating about them clearly. And so taxonomy is a way that we can kind of try to put some order on the organism. The chaos. Yes. <laughs> what might otherwise feel like chaos without it. Oh, right. So yeah, boiling it down, it is we like to put things into categories because we think that categories help us understand our world better. And so we've tried to do that with some sort of objective basis for all organisms on earth. I will say that I think my obsession with taxonomy started extremely young. My dad liked to teach me Latin names of trees when I was a kid because wow. So like imagine seven-year-old Casey being like that tree is a prunus sepertella pendula, which is a weeping cherry tree. And so I have always been unrelatable apparently. <laughs> and this is something that I've found like super delightful knowing all this stuff always made me feel super smart. Um, it, anytime you know the Latin name of something, it's going to make you feel super smart. I say Latin, lots of these things have Greek adjectives basically as part of it, or, um, or just like somebody's name with an I at the end as part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, the animals go by lots of common names. You can think about African lions, red maples. Sometimes they have many common names. Think of the Puma. Sarah, what are yes. other names for Puma? We've talked about that one. They're the cougar. They're the mountain lion. They're the fire cat. They're the Florida panther. <laughs> All the things. Yes. And, and sometimes we have common names that refer to more than one animal, like black panther, which we also talked about mm -hmm. in an episode exploring Florida, that when you say black panther, it could be a jaguar. It could be a leopard that has a melanistic trait and doesn't actually describe the whole species. And so it can be really confusing, um, especially when you're talking then about multiple language, like you mentioned, Sarah, in some languages, they call them orangutans and others, they call them mawas. Like there's a lot of different variability depending on where you're coming from. So the idea is, is that the scientific name of a species stays standardized across all languages and is almost like math, like Everyone understands the same number system, no matter what language you're in. This is supposed to help us all understand what are we talking about when we're talking about a particular animal and their relationships to each other too. So normally our scientific names, um, let's pick Panthera Leo because Sarah brought it up, the African lion. Panthera is the genus. So it refers to a, a slightly bigger group. Um, do you know who else is in that genus, Sarah? The tiger would be another example, which their scientific name is Panthera tigris. Yes. See, one. <laughs> it's, it's not always terribly complicated, no, right? These are the ones I like. I get it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we're able to pretty easily from those scientific names know that lions and tigers are really closely related because they are part of the same genus, but they're not the same animal because they have different species names. And we're not going to go too deep into the higher classes of taxonomy, but I remember in seventh grade, I had to memorize the order of, yes. of degrees of taxon. So you can kind of think of these like really, really broad to getting more and more narrow. Right. So Sarah, did you ever have to remember some sort of like yes. mnemonic device that yep. would help you remember? Okay. So what was yours? King Philip came over for good spaghetti. Yes, that was mine too. <laughs> I think that was the one for a long time. And then I just remember you give that to a whole bunch of middle school kids and there are several less family-friendly varieties that people would come up with. 
<laughs> but that was the one that was the one we learned and I it worked I still remember I always forget the middle part but I remember King Philip spaghetti Kingdom <laughs> <laughs> um, violent class order family genus species yes yes um one recent one I saw just the other day was keeping precious creatures organized for grumpy scientists so the first letter <laughs> of each of those words corresponds to that kingdom phylum class order family genus species so animals who are from the same class for example are more related than theoretically than animals that are from a different class but as you get lower down on that that pole they should be more and more related to each other I like that you use the words theoretically and should be in that description (laughs) And uh, herein lies the frustration. <laughs> yeah. So this, this system, I believe was, I'm saying this now and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm panicking that I got it wrong. But uh, Carl Linnaeus, Linnaeus came yeah. up, yes, with this, uh, this species of taxonomy. He's the one who proposed this and um, these classifications at various levels um, and came up with the whole scientific naming of species. He didn't do, I don't think, all of those categories he had a smaller number of categories but yeah the scientific name piece of it that genus and species name was him too and then some of the other stuff got some of those got middle kind of worked out yeah added in later i think and those also sort of change like you will also hear subfamily yes. you will hear subclass you will hear clade subspecies subspecies yes which we'll get into in a moment but these are all just sort of it's a little bit messy ways for us to try and, and classify them. And we're going to talk about the complicated nature of naming species today. The higher levels are kind of even more complicated because we start to get into really messy things mm-hmm. having to do with like evolutionary processes and timelines and, and all of that. So we're going to focus on species, but just, just keep in mind that this gets even worse. Birds are reptiles, guys. Birds are reptiles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's going to break your brains a little bit. If you get too far into it, that's Rue playing with quarters right now. In case you heard that. Um, so, okay. This to me is a fairly like basic question that you might get asked on like a quiz in the seventh grade. However, is a very unclean answer. So Sarah, what is a species? I'm sure that I did get asked this question on a quiz in seventh grade at some point. And the answer that I probably would have given at the time would have something to do with a species is a population that is able to reproduce and produce fertile offspring. Like that's how we were taught. These animals are, I mean, I guess they, you would probably say something about them having similar characteristics maybe. So a a population of animals that is able to reproduce and have offspring that will then reproduce. That was the deal. Simple as that. That's a species. I'm getting my gold star out. I'm giving you an A on quiz for seventh grade. You got the answer correct as far as basically all of us, I think, were taught. And looking at the internet, this seems to be actually the really common thing since like the 20th century to define what a species is. And it was a definition that was put forward by Ernst Mayer, who is a German biologist. And it feels pretty straightforward on its surface level, right? It does. 
I'm going to talk mostly about animals right now because I think it's easier for a lot of people to conceptualize what reproduction's yeah. like for animals and like what different animals like we know what the difference between a lion and a tiger is. But uh, I always felt like fertile offspring, first of all, is a key part of that, right? It was always explained with the same example, which is that horses and donkeys are different species because if you breed them together, they have mules who can't have babies. And therefore, that is how you know Mm -hmm. that these are infertile animals or or these are not different species um, is by this infertile animal. But something you learn really quickly when you start to study biology in depth is that animals don't fall into boxes. They do not like, they they really resist simplicity in that way. And so this definition starts to get a little hairy. Do you know some of the things that like start to make it a little hairy? Well, there's a couple things. I mean, the, the big thing for me is it's just not true. Like we know that right. there are animals <laughs> of different species that are that we have designated as different species that breed and produce offspring that are then able to breed like hybrid hybridization of species. And I think this is also a way that new species can develop over time. Right. But we get, we get hybrids, like we have hybrid animals. So we see that happening, which is what's maybe the primary confusion for me. There are also animals that don't reproduce sexually which that's automatically like not doesn't even fall under that definition right think about like i was we always use the example of sponges but i feel like actually if you're into houseplants like succulents when they sort of Mm -hmm. like have they bud or they have their leaf fall off and then it just roots itself and whoop it's a new plant and that's Mm -hmm. the plant reproducing it doesn't need another plant some some plants need another plant to reproduce Mm -hmm. but some plants don't. And so if you're saying like they, well, that one can't breed with that one. So they're a different species. If they don't require another individual at all, well, then it's kind of hard to figure out what that means. The first one that really like popped up for me because they discovered it, I think when I was a teenager are pizzly bears or growler bears, <laughs> delightfully named animals. Are you familiar with the pizzly? Or growler bear. I've actually never heard it referred to by either of those names. Really? Yeah. But I'm familiar with it happening. Yeah. This is a phenomenon where basically they started to find polar bears that didn't look like polar bears or maybe grizzly bears that didn't quite look like grizzly bears. And when they did genetic testing, they found that polar bears and grizzly bears who are designated as different species. And I think if you can Google images of them, you would be like, yeah, that makes sense. They look different and they'd live in different habitats most of the time that they interbreed together. And we have a decent sample size of individual animals who have not just 50, 50 DNA, but maybe 75% one DNA and 25% the other proving that one of their parental units was a mix between two Mm -hmm. and successfully reproduced, therefore had fertile offspring. And so that started to buck that idea of Mm -hmm. species. Lots of things bucked that before that, but that's a a prime example to me. Yeah. And I just feel, I mean, I, I know like I see ducks all the time around here that are people will post pictures of ducks in some of the birding groups that I'm in. And and they're like, oh yeah, that looks like a hybrid between the species and the species. Like it just happens 
all the time. Yeah. If you start digging, it happens with turtles. If they don't find individuals of their same species, they are not picky. They're going to go for whatever <laughs> that they can find in the area. Now we've actually known this for uh, probably a longer time in zoos because mm-hmm. in a lot of nature, and we'll talk a little bit about like what characteristics might be used to designate a species, but in zoos, one of those things that's taken away is geography. Like these animals don't necessarily have to be geographically separated so that they never get the chance to reproduce. If you pop two animals in the same space that are close enough related, they could successfully reproduce. And that's something that has happened with orangutans. If you're not familiar, there's now three designated species of orangutans. Two of them were only designated in like the year 2000, at least by what I would consider pretty official sources. But they have been, the Bornean and Sumatran orangutans have been successfully reproducing in human care for a really long time. And it's because normally in nature, they'd be on two different islands. And now they're not on two different islands and they're having offspring and those offspring can have offspring. And all of a sudden those lines start to get a little messy. So, okay. Our definition of species, not a really good definition (laughs) of a species, who decides what makes a species and how do they get to decide it? And that's a great question. <laughs> I mean, I guess theoretically it is anymore. It should be scientific community consensus. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about how this goes down later on. But I think part of the struggle of what you're getting at here is that who gets credit with quote unquote discovering a species maybe isn't always who should or who who really did. Let's put it that way. Carl Linnaeus was a white guy and um, typically it was other white guys who got to decide what species were named under this naming system. Think about it. It was basically invented in Europe. So mm-hmm. imagine you were at that time, indigenous person anywhere else around the world, and some white explorer comes up <laughs> and is like, huh, what's that? And you're, you already you have, have a name, name for it. it. Yeah. You know what it is. Like, it's not like people in these other places were so disconnected from nature that they did not understand basic differences between different types of animals. Lots of people around the world had names for different species of birds, all of that. And yes, generally some white explorer comes up, starts to write down all the things they see, brings it back to Europe, names it after himself, probably. (laughs) I'm looking at you, Stellar's sea lions, Stellar's (laughs) seagulls, Linnaeus's two-toed sloth. And, uh, and that's what the species is now. It doesn't really necessarily matter what the the people who lived alongside this animal for a long time or organism trees, uh, it had to do with the people who knew the system and also who had merit to be able to then propose the species within the system, because I'm sure that white scientists were prioritized by the time that this, this particular system was invented. Unfortunately, sorry, go ahead, Sarah. Well, I was just going to say you you did talk about this as well a little bit. It's not just who's doing it. It's how they're doing it. You, you you know, mentioned naming things after yourselves or after themselves. You talked about this in, when we talked about Bird Names for Birds, which is a great organization. And so thinking about not just who and how they quote unquote discovered these animals, but what they're calling them to. And this is, this is something, well, I hope all of this is starting to get 
more awareness brought around it and maybe hopefully starting to get a little bit better. I know we've talked about a couple of animals previously. I think there was one in our bat episode where we talked about when a new species of bat was recognized that they actually named it after the place that it was found. I think it was or something like that. So I think hopefully we're starting to be a little more cognizant of this. I I hope we're moving in that direction too. There's definitely even just the last couple of years been some complaints from people who live in places. I I am more familiar with Madagascar than I think a lot of other places. And I know, and, and also that's a place where people are still quote unquote discovering species Mm -hmm. all the time. And people who live there get frustrated because scientists from uh, the global North will come down ask them to show them the cool animals in their Mm -hmm. area and then take credit. And, and, and that includes also things just like on population studies and things like that. A lot of the people who live in the actual region don't get credit on those papers. They don't get named in the papers because that's, and we're going to talk about this in a moment. Typically how you end up getting a species named is you publish a scientific paper that provides evidence that this animal deserves to be its own species. And you put your name on the paper. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes you put your name or in, in history, your sponsor's name or, or other indications on either the scientific name or the common name. And so it's, yeah, it's great when, when organizations or scientists are able to name what bird names for name, bird names for birds was advocating for is changing the common names of species because they know that's easier than changing the scientific name of species. Mm -hmm to things that are more generalized to the location or the physical description of the species rather than the name of a person, because other than maybe naming that species, maybe it doesn't really have to do with how that species lives its life or, uh, what color it is or, you know, where it lives, all of that sort of stuff. Okay. So we kind of mentioned this, what kind of information might scientists be looking at when they're trying to identify a member of a species. And let's start like historically, you're yeah. Carl Linnaeus. What are you actually looking I was going to say back in the day, in Carl Linnaeus's day, that all they can do is go by what they're seeing. So they're, they are, they're going out there and taking those notes. What does this specimen look like? Hey, does it have feathers? It might be related to this other thing that has feathers. Does it, how does it walk? What does it eat? What type of habitat does it live in? They will probably take size and weight measurements if they can get a specimen, those sorts of things. And they're looking for all of those different common observable traits to group things together. Right. So yeah, higher up on the chain, you might be saying things like, huh, does it have feathers? Does it have a beak? Um, well, if it has those things, we know it's a bird and then you can get more specific. Well, does it live in this area? Does it have this color feathers? Is it this big? Well, maybe it's a, I don't know, American Robin. So those sort of observable traits are the way that a lot of species have been named over the years. It, when they got more into behavioral science, they were looking at other things like uh, checking to see if males and females, when they were like birds, for example, are calling within mm-hmm. the forest if they're responding to each other's calls, because also males and females in different species often look different for birds. So you're trying to match up which ones are mating with each other. 
This is also challenging from another aspect. Um, for example, eel species go through metamorphic changes throughout their lifespan. So they're like spawned in the middle of the ocean. They go float up into the top of the ocean with all of the, the little plankton and things. They're basically microscopic for a while. And then they change into sort of this translucent gelatinous sort of looking thing. And then they're going to become more solid looking. And at some stages, eels are hermaphroditic. So you don't know if it's a male or female. And so by the time you find it, when it's an adult, several years later, you don't know if you're even looking at the same eel as you were originally and tracking those animals over the course of their lives is almost impossible in the habitat that they live in. Yeah. And there, I mean, how many examples I think about a frog, you don't even have right. to think about like something, you know, think about a frog, think about insects. Mm -hmm. You know, trying to identify an insect larva and matching it up with its adult, you know, yeah, so many challenges. So many challenges, so many cool opportunities for science too. Like imagine finding like a, a beetle larva and being like, I'm going to take it home <laughs> and I'm going to mm -hmm. see what it grows up into. And then I'm going to pretend like I found it first. <laughs> and like, there's some merit to saying like, I did all this work. And like, I, I don't want to basically discredit all scientists to say that they're not doing important work right. to delineate species, but like, there's some cool things that happen. It's just making sure that also credit is given to yes. everyone yes. who is involved with that. Yes, absolutely. Cause I think again, part of what we're wanting to get across tonight is that this is important. And so we recognize yes. the importance of having this universal sort of way that we can talk about life, but doing it responsibly and crediting is very important. Yes. Okay. So that was the old timey scientists. What can, yes. what do new timey scientists, new modern day, <laughs> new timey, new timey scientists <laughs> have access to DNA, which as you can imagine is extremely helpful. Also still very confusing to somebody like me who feels like I don't understand genetics well enough, but, <laughs> but this gives us a whole new way to evaluate what makes a species and how we are grouping animals together. So in one way, this is really cool. In another way, this kind of overthrows a lot of stuff maybe that was thought before. And so that is, this is another source of confusion and frustration for me and probably for lots of people when it comes to taxonomy, it's things that we thought we knew and the way that we had categorized things is not always necessarily true anymore. Right. And, and we haven't quite talked about it yet, but species is not the lowest level we organize animals at. We also have subspecies, which are typically credited Sometimes you'll see them tacked on as a third scientific name. Mm -hmm. And so that's another level at which, so for example, tigers, they're all panthera tigris, but there's a bunch of different subspecies under that. So you will see some of those other ones put at the end of that word. And then everybody gets to argue whether or not they're right. Yes. <laughs> that's how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> there's even lower classifications like um, ecotype. So sometimes that's how they'll, uh, separate orcas, for example, is like, oh, we're not quite sure if they're, I don't know if this is still true, but it was a couple of years ago. We're not quite sure if they quite count as subspecies because they kind of are fluid all over the place, but they act differently and they kind of have different traits based on different parts of their environment. So they're at least different enough that we should try and start to classify them. And again, we'll get to why that's important soon. So yeah, we've got observing these animals 
all the way down to DNA. And this is still happening today. We're still naming species all the time. And like big ones, we're not just naming like bugs. We're naming big animals still. So for example, in 2017, a new species of orangutan was identified. They are called the Tapanuli orangutan. And they are found on Sumatra, just like Sumatran orangutans are, but their population was kind of lost to science, at least for a while, and then, quote, rediscovered. And that's when scientists started observing this population and found that things might be a little bit different from those Sumatran orangutans that were up a little bit more north. So they started to see behavioral differences when they were comparing. One of the reasons they make Borneans and Sumatrans uh, different in the first place is they found that they have a special call called a long call. Sarah, can you explain what a long call is? Yeah, it's a it's a call that male orangutans will use in particular. It's kind of a here I am in all my orangutan gloriousness. Are there any ladies around? Slash other boys, I'm here. <laughs> yes, JOA. And they can use it in different ways that orangutans probably understand better than we can. Mm-hmm. But they found that like the pitch was more similar to one species, but that the length was more similar to a different species. And so that made them a little different. They were then able to find the remains of a male orangutan from that area and found that the skull measurements were also different from the Sumatran orangutans nearby. So that sort of gave them an idea that this is, this is not just like these guys have their own culture because orangutans do have their own culture Mm -hmm. and they can kind of specialize to different things that this might be actually more based on genetics than it is just on their location. And finally they were able to get a hold of some DNA and using all of these things combined, they were able to conclusively say that Tapanuli orangutans, this population that they found was completely different from the Sumatran orangutans. And really like the convincing argument to me is that they found that basically if you trace all the orangutans back, they all come back to one species of orangutan. Mm -hmm. And they found that the Tapanuli orangutans who live on Sumatra were more closely related to Bornean orangutans, which live on a completely different island. Mm -hmm than they were to the orangutans that lived on the same island as them, which is crazy. And so using all of those tools, which they would have never been able to really look at that significant data of DNA until recently, they were able to say, you know what? Different. And that's important because all orangutans are endangered. And we now know that that population of orangutan isn't just like, it's there. <laughs> we, we know that there's only... 800 members of this species left. And so that means that we need to prioritize its conservation. It's not always done in good faith though. Not everybody's on the the up and up when it comes to name a new species. (laughs) Sarah, like, can you imagine why somebody would want to name a new species? Of course. Yeah. You, I mean, you can name it whatever you want. You can credit the glory. I, yeah, I just, I feel like if, if you are in the science field, this would be like your Super Bowl ring, you know, this would be yeah. like your crowning achievement. How cool to be able to say that you've discovered a new species to science. However, guys, don't do that unless you've really <laughs> unless you've really done it. So there's a really excellent article that's in Smithsonian Mag. 
that we'll link in our episode description. So check it out if you want to, you should, cause it's super fun. Um, and it's called the big ugly problem at the heart of taxonomy. And basically what they're talking about is that uh, reptiles in particular, and I'm very experienced with this because Andrew is constantly having conversations with me about the changing taxonomy within reptiles. <laughs> I yet another source of my frustration. I've also had conversations with Andrew about this. Um, let's, let's go with one reason, one minor reason only applicable to me that this is annoying is we would get a new animal at our last job. And my job is always to do the research on that animal and tell everybody where it lives and what it eats and what is this animal. And when you get a king snake that some scientists argue doesn't exist yes. and others argue that it's one of eight different species of king snake, it is so frustrating. Andrew has had to reach out to others like professional scientists and get their opinion on how we should classify this animal that we have named this name, mm-hmm. this Mexican black king snake that may or may not be a black king snake or a desert king snake or who knows. Yep. Only applicable to, to, to a very small set of, of people. But as far as like an education standpoint goes, those different species that they were trying to group this particular animal into had different diets, had different ranges, had different sizes, had different amounts of babies they have. How am I supposed to tell anybody about this animal Mm -hmm. if I don't know what it is? That's a great question. And therein lies a reason why this is so important. Right. We have to have some kind of order in order to learn about this vast world. But we, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to say it any, any more clearly, but I think that this does illustrate the importance of having an accurate name and figuring out these connections as best as possible so that we can continue to learn and share and be accurate with the information. So it's good. It's just hard. Right. And, and these King snake scientists, as far as I understand it, are having a good faith debate mm-hmm. about all these different animals that come in different colors. People come in different colors for all the same species. Members of the same species come in different colors sometimes. And that's just what happens. They don't even have to be from different parts of the range. They can just have different genetics, but there are some scientists that are not necessarily operating on the up and up. And this particular article I'm talking about, don't come at me. I'm citing an article. Um, There is a scientist that cited, his name is Raymond Hoser. And I believe he's also Australian. He's named 800 species between the year 2000 and 2012. No one has time to do that. No. (laughs) But basically there are certain bodies that sort of regulate this. There are like nomenclature bodies Mm -hmm. that, that govern the official naming of species. And basically their bar is do you have evidence and can you get it published in a paper? And my understanding of what this guy is doing is somebody, typically what happens is you say, hi, I'm a scientist. I have some data that is leading me to think that maybe we're discovering something about this species. It might lead us to identifying a new species, but more evidence is needed. Like that's honestly majority of scientific papers is someone being like, this suggests that, but we don't know yet. (laughs) Um, Come back later. But the the article is saying that this guy will go in and be like, hmm, I like your information. I'm taking it and I'm going to publish it and say that we found a new species based on this evidence. And I'm going to self-publish. 
in my journal, because normally when you get published in journals, people have to peer review you and tell you whether or not your evidence is up to the standards by which the other members of your field are expecting. So that can be that like your experiment has a big enough sample size to draw the conclusions that you are, that there aren't var variables that you're not accounting for. And in this case, that you are a, actually using significant evidence generally that you have discovered to name this new species. And this guy somehow has named 800 new species. And that has caused kind of a revolt within the reptile community. They are not pleased about this man, um, which you can imagine if you're like a scientist toiling away at your own research, this would be an affront. <laughs> and so there are some of the scientists saying the rules are broken. We don't like these rules anymore. And if the nomenclature board decides that they're going to go with this guy's rules, just because he followed the rules kind of, then the rule, the naming system's broken and we're, we're not doing it anymore, which puts you in a sticky place. That guy actually like petitioned the nomenclature board to say, no, my species are real. Tell them they're real. <laughs> That's basically what he said. So yeah, no, things this, aren't petty at all. This hurts my head even more. Like I need to look into this guy because it just 800. I, I please read this article. It's wild. Um, thanks to my friend Kyle for posting this on one of our, our groups once. Um, but you might be saying to yourself, why does this matter? Who cares that this man has just put a bunch of names on animals? Who, who cares? Like, you're like, Casey, I get it, but I don't really care what kind of king snake that is. It's a snake. But it does have implications, right, Sarah? It does. And first, I will just say that there is, even though I'm about to give you some reasons why this is important, there is a small part of me that has like a toe in that boat too, because I don't want it to have to matter. You know, I want to just sure. be able to appreciate life for what it is. It's all amazing. We should just preserve and protect and we don't have to worry so much about what's related to what and blah, blah, blah. We can, you know, learn as much as we can about like the ecosystem as a whole and just do our best to protect it. And in an ideal world, maybe, but the fact is we don't do that. Right. So I, knowing species and naming species is important for conservation. It's important for protecting them. And we've talked about this a little bit before. We have, we talked about it a little bit with our Florida Panther mm -hmm. little section, right, Sarah? So what sort of conservation impacts can naming particular species or na not naming particular species cause? I, so we we talked a little bit when we talked about it in with the Florida Panther, we talked about sort of having, I don't like the word ownership, but I'm going to use it anyway, yeah. but sort of having ownership over that animal. If this is something that is local to you or special to you in some way, you are going to be more likely to protect it. And, and it's also in some ways it might also help us do a better job. Like if we are learning that things are really different species, kind of like what you were talking about with just with the orangutans, they might need slightly different things too. So it's just going to help us be more targeted. It's going to help us be more focused in our conservation efforts. 
And it also might help people care a little more. It's funny. I see that you put giraffe on here. This is exactly what I was thinking about too, um, prior to, to you having this on here, because giraffe is a great example of an animal that maybe a lot of people don't realize is in trouble and their populations have been de declining. It's also one where there has been a lot of debate in the scientific community about species and subspecies and how many are there and what are they and all of these things. I had heard anywhere up to like 14, I think potentially 14 different species of giraffe. And I think within the past couple of years now, they have landed on four is that right? Four species of giraffe with some different subspecies in there as well. But so now we know that losing giraffes in this certain area, like that might be a, a species, like these species are even in more trouble than we thought when we had them all classified as one species altogether, if that makes sense. I feel like that was a rambling answer, but hopefully I hit upon something useful there. You did. Um, you hit upon a couple things. So let's talk about that giraffe for a second. I think sometimes when we think about a range of a species, you think of this big continuous zone. Mm -hmm. You think of this blob on a map where all of these animals live. I think a lot of times in Africa, it's easier to visualize how, first of all, Africa is a ginormous continent. The wildlife you have in one area is not the same as another, but historically, some of those ranges were actually continuous blobs. Mm -hmm. And today, because of human development, because of changes in habitat, those populations are broken up a lot more. So when you look at the actual places giraffes live, they are actually broken up significantly. They don't live next to each other. These are not animals that are like, oh, everybody's in Uganda. It's like, no, there's in a bunch of different places mm -hmm. around sub-Saharan Africa um, in these little isolated pockets. So for a long time, everybody was just like, there are giraffes and there's a lot of subspecies of giraffes, but they're all giraffes and they're just kind of threatened animals near threatened. I think they then got classified up to vulnerable. So right now we're touching a little bit into those conservation statuses. And conservations, changing conservation statuses has implications because once a reach, species reaches a certain threshold of a conservation endangerment, that's when political action actually mm -hmm. starts to happen. So the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, huge credit to them. They took over a thousand samples from giraffes in these different populations out in Africa and were able to demonstrate that there are four distinct species of giraffes across those populations. There's a couple subspecies in there. It's not just based on looks. It's actually based on significant genetic differences. And so it moved it, it. So they published this and they were like, haha, four species of giraffes. And I remember working in conservation being like, oh, fascinating. And went over to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the IUCN, and was like, what does their page say? And they hadn't caught up yet. So sometimes you'll see in one area that someone's decided something's a new species. And even when the new orangutan news came out, everyone was texting me. I was like, hold on. We declare new species all the time. Yeah. Calm down. And then like the orangutan researchers we know were like, oh, a new species that day. And I was like, oh, that's, that's faster acceptance <laughs> than we normally get from the scientific community. But yeah, eventually they were able to break them up and they were able to find that some populations were declining at a rate that they're considered critically endangered and they warrant higher levels of protection than if we had looked at the population as a whole and the rate of decline in the, the larger population versus that isolated one. And because of that, like unlike the orangutan where everybody's already endangered anyway, this actually 
made a difference on being able to target certain populations as being more endangered than others and also target those conservation efforts. So for example, giraffes are are hunted in some parts of their range. As conservationists, like we have to recognize that hunting giraffes is part of some people's culture and putting a blanket ban on that, even if we find hunting giraffes objectionable just because we don't like it isn't necessarily a good enough reason to do it. But if we can prove that the populations are being hunted to a point where it is unsustainable amongst other factors that threaten them, then it gives enough leverage to say, not these ones, right. <laughs> not this population or this population, but only at this rate, because this is how much that they can sustain. And so by doing this work, we were actually able to do a better job keeping the diversity on earth existent. So that's my, my rant about giraffes, I guess. And politically, we also see this with things like the Florida uh, panther being a mountain lion. If people can break down something into something they, they, oh, this is ours. This is Florida's. We got to protect it because it's ours. Like it's the same reason they made the tiger, the national animal of India. It's because they wanted people to feel pride in sharing space with a species they might not otherwise feel like was special to them. Yeah. And that, and it's, I think been very helpful for tigers as well in terms of tiger conservation. Interesting thing, this is kind of a, a random aside, but ties into potential confusions with taxonomy as well. Interestingly, when you talk about what defines a species, it does also depend on who or for what you're defining it. Because if you think about like the Endangered Species Act, oh yeah, great, the writing great point. in that is actually such that it includes subspecies like it can protect a specific subspecies so that's where something like the florida panther comes in the florida panther is not a species it is a subspecies but it still gets special protection under the endangered species act uh, because of the way that that's written yeah and and kind of the opposite of that i believe it's red wolves where some people are trying to get them declared not a species but doing so would make them lose funding and protection mm-hmm. for those animals and could result in an extinction of an animal that is significantly different enough from other populations and occurring in a space that it wouldn't otherwise live in. And I think that's another thing is like these animals live in their ecosystem. They're not separated from mm-hmm. that ecosystem. When you remove just because you have wolves in Montana doesn't mean having that like negates the absence of wolves in another part of the country. You lose wolves in that certain part of the country, it's still going to have those cascading ecosystem effects and you're going to see that radiate out. So the protection in different parts of their area is really important. That is from kind of the in habitat situation, but you also have to think about it from a zoo's perspective. We were talking about like, we (laughs) didn't know what the snake was. Imagine that you are breeding tigers, for example, and you want to make sure that you preserve the genetics of an animal that lives in a particular area, making sure that they're designated as a, a certain subspecies is a good way to do that. However, there are certain instances where there are animals that are so endangered or have so few of them in human care that they're going to get inbred if you just keep them so separated. So putting them back together, if they are not, if they are not genetically distinct enough to warrant being species don't break or subspecies don't break them down into those little parts let those those subspecies intermix with each other because that's not doing any damage to that genetic line so it's important from both perspectives of 
is this a species <laughs> and is this not a species to protect the animals, to make sure that we know what's going on on earth. So it is important. It's confusing and it's hard and it can be frustrating and difficult to define, but it is important and it's important that we keep working at it. Yeah. Now let's say you don't care about conservation at all, in which case I'm not really sure why you got this far into the podcast, <laughs> but I really appreciate We're it. We're so for entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> it's for our sparkling personalities. Um, but uh, one really meaningful thing that might make a difference to you is because of this hoser guy's naming different species, he decided that um, some spitting cobras in Africa are a different uh, genus, a different genus than what other scientists recognize them as. And he was like, mm, these are no longer Afronagia, they are Sprinklandis, which I enjoy saying. And you might think, well, who cares? <laughs> but if you are bit by one, and you go to a hospital in Africa and you say a different name from the name that they recognize as the scientific species there, because you might speak a different language. You can't identify what the snake is that bit you. They can't give you the right antivenom. Antivenom is not something that you can just be like, meh, rattlesnake, universal, cobra. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's very specific, sometimes down to the species, but oftentimes into at least the genus of species. So if you're saying, ah, oh, I got bit by Afro-nausea because that's what the general scientific community agrees that the name is, but because the nomenclature board said that that's Sprinklandis and this, the, the hospital just has Sprinklandis down, then there could be a miscommunication and in time is important in that situation. So there are broader ranging impacts outside of just the conservation field to how accurately we name these species and, uh, and, and how we decide what is what. And then of course, as we touched on from an ethical perspective, making sure that everyone who's involved in the process of delineating what a species is, is recognized and has an equitable hand in making sure that we name these species in a way that doesn't just honor one person. So that is my talk on species. I love it. <laughs> I'm going to read more about this sort of fraudulent species discovery, not discovery, and more about that process, because that's actually really interesting to me. And I'm really surprised that something like that is able to happen on that level. So that was something that I definitely learned for today. And I feel like just to summarize a little bit that I don't know how clearly we answered what a species is, but I, I think it's, it's important to recognize that it's just, it's a combination of all of these things now. And taxonomy can be confusing. What a species is can be confusing because not everybody in the scientific community agrees. And that doesn't mean that it's bad or that we should stop doing it. This is part of what science is and how it works. So we're taking in all things into account, the evolutionary history of these animals, the genetics, the DNA, as well as their characteristics and, and traits and all of that. That answer that we gave in seventh grade science about what makes a species there's that's still part of the answer. <laughs> it's just not the whole answer. And we, we know that now. So this is really, it's interesting. I appreciate the discussion, even when it is frustrating. <laughs> I, I read a, well, I skimmed a paper that had 26 definitions of what a species is yeah, um, based on different perspectives. And so 
not everyone can agree, but especially if you have some, especially a kid, I would say in your life, who's like one of those people who just likes interrogating the world around them and discovering things for themselves, there's still so much room for this and it has real life implications. So being a scientist and actually making important discoveries is, is still absolutely an avenue to pursue the, we haven't, the world is not as small as we, we might think, and there's still lots and lots to learn all the time. So hopefully you learned something today. All right, stick around and we'll have your action for the week when we come back. Welcome back. Every week we give you an action, a challenge, a take home, not homework because we already did all the nerd stuff earlier. (laughs) So this is just a challenge for the week. I actually have two of them. I mentioned the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. They have something called the Red List, which is basically a catalog of a lot of the life that we have on earth. And it gives you an idea of what level those animals are threatened. Oftentimes they give you really cool information about where this animal lives and, and how it's related to other animals. And so this is super easy. Go type in iucnredlist.org and there'll be a little search bar and type in whatever your favorite animal is or favorite plant or favorite mushroom or favorite. Well, they don't have as much bacteria as you think, but like whatever you want to want to search and, um, and take a look what the scientific name of your species is and, uh, and learn a little bit more about it, how it's doing out in the wild, um, and some cool information because scientists work really hard on those pages and more people should see them. And so that is number one on the challenges for the week. The other one is it is black history month. Bird names for birds is an organization that is trying to make the common name naming process for birds specifically a little less Eurocentric, a little less based on historical people who may have done things that are a little bit objectionable, to put it mildly, in today's terms and start to give birds names that reflect more of their life history. So if you haven't checked that out from a prior episode, that's an organization that we like. We're actually on their website, so they'll link you to our stuff, but, but we like what they do. So check out bird names for birds and see if there's anything that you can help with on their website. That's, that's number two for the week. Sarah, anything else to add before we say goodbye? I really appreciate the discussion tonight. I'm going to recap, though, what we said at the beginning. We've got a lot of places that you can find us. We're on Facebook. You can search for A Little Greener Podcast. We are on Instagram at A Little Greener Pod. We are now on Twitter at A Greener Podcast because I just like to add different names for me (laughs) to have to remember every week. You can also send us an email at a little greener podcast at gmail.com questions, comments, suggestions for future episodes. We would love to know what you want to hear from us next. So we appreciate you listening. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good week, everybody. Bye. Bye.